This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we're interviewing uh, Dr. Robert Soroya. Wildlife Biologist, Director of Biodiversity Pathways at the Wildlife Science Center at the University of British Columbia. Welcome, Robert, and uh, it's good to be talking with you. And uh, did you grow up in Western Canada? I didn't, actually. I grew up in Montreal, but I got west as soon as I could. <laughs> Me I too. I knew that uh, that's where the wilderness was, and right. that's where I wanted to be. And what drew you into the study of wildlife? Well, actually, it goes back to my neighbors. They were um, an immigrant couple from Russia and Poland. No kidding. And they fought in World War II. He did, and uh, they didn't have kids of their own, so they took me under their wing and taught me to shoot my first gun and uh, go out into the backcountry and Uh just observe and also learn about science, which was pretty fun. Oh, great. Where did you earn your PhD? I did that at University of Alberta in uh, in Edmonton, so one province over to the east in Alberta, which is burning up right now with the big forest fire. Sorry about all the smoke you might be getting down there. <laughs> so you're in Revelstoke. Is it smoky over there? It was for a few days last week, but it's cleared up. It's now cool again. Um, the snow's melting fast. It was a bit of a strange spring. It was cold and long-lasting, and then uh, the snow started melting really fast. We had over 85-degree weather, and uh, it, it kind of caught me off guard with some of the wildlife movements anyways. So when you uh, got your Ph.D., uh, in what field was it? Where's your study? It was in biology and wildlife sciences, and I specialized in caribou in uh, Western Canada. I actually once were involved in a study of mussels, and now you're involved in <laughs> studying large mammals. How did that shift come about? Well, that's kind of the story of growing up in the East, where you tend to study things that are a little bit smaller and uh, less dependent on pure wilderness, I guess, at least in southern Ontario and Quebec, where I grew up in southern Quebec. But yeah, I was really interested in the in the invasion of zebra mussels that encrusted all the native bivalves that we have in those huge freshwater lakes and rivers in the east. So the zebra mussels were invading, and it was a great way to study a before-after pattern. And once I moved to the Yukon while I was still doing my undergrad, I realized that I became just as much or more interested in large mammals and... Um, often because they represented wilderness or they require wild areas to survive. And that's also one reason I don't live in a big city where the universities are based. I kind of live in a frontier town Uh in Revelstoke, B.C. And as soon as you go north, about 10 minutes from my home, you're out of cell range, you're above the big dams, and it's... uh, Especially if I cross the lake onto the west side, it's you don't see any other souls ever. In over 25 years, you don't have to go far to not see any people whatsoever. So now you're involved in biodiversity pathways at the Wildlife Science Center, where you're the director. Uh, 
Tell us about the biodiversity pathways. Yeah, it's an institute that's housed in a couple of universities, so three actually. Um, University of Northern British Columbia up in Prince George, mm. University of Alberta, and University of British Columbia Okanagan. Ah. So we have a whole bunch of different focuses. So wildlife is the focus of the division at the Okanagan campus in Kelowna, and remote sensing, GIS mapping, and disturbance mapping, like from human alteration and natural disturbances, is the focus of the biodiversity pathways up in Prince George at UNBC. So that uh, that chapter is led by Oscar Venter. He's a professor up there. And the one down here is led by myself and Professor Adam Ford. Mm -hmm. So each different division focuses on different aspects. So some of us focus on biodiversity monitoring. Some of us at the Wildlife Science Center focus on uh, mostly vertebrates, mammals, um, but also birds a bit. And then folks, Prince George, focus on mapping human disturbance. Are you heavily involved in caribou monitoring now? Yeah, that's my main, my main bailiwick is researching caribou, testing options for recovery, and no, not, not only caribou, but the ecosystem as a whole, which is what I find the most interesting. Huh? So the things that eat caribou, the things that caribou eat, and the things that compete with caribou, uh -huh. as well as the plants that they depend on and, and the big old-growth forests. So, yeah, the interest that I have, at least, is more about the ecosystem than even just caribou on their own. So uh, what's the uh, distinction between reindeer and caribou? Are they the same? They're the same species. So, yeah, caribou are like Santa's reindeer for sure, but they're different subspecies, and, yeah, they have a lot of differences in terms of their behavior and what limits their populations. I gather reindeer are domesticated and caribou are wild. Is that one of the differences? Not exactly. In Scandinavia and in Finland and Russia, there are both domestic reindeer, what they call semi-domestic, that are herded like in big wild pastures. There are also large fences to keep predators out. Those are more on the domestic spectrum, but they also have fully wild herds. In Norway, they have these alpine caribou that are kind of like barren ground caribou because they live above treeline. They're like North America's barren ground caribou. But in Finland, they also have forest-dwelling caribou or wild, what they call over there, wild forest reindeer that are kind of like our woodland caribou in southern Canada and northern United States. Mm-hmm. How big do caribou get? Oh, they get to be the size between... We often joke that they're bigger than a deer, bigger than a mule deer, but they're on hoofs that are the size of moose. <laughs> so they have these huge hoofs, but they're a little bit bigger than deer. <clears throat> but that depends which caribou we're talking about. If we're talking about peri caribou way up in the high Arctic, uh -huh. which are a subspecies of North American caribou, which are called Rangifer tarandus, very uh -huh. caribou are a subspecies of that, and they get to be pretty small. Uh -huh. So, yeah. So what has changed uh, regarding the distribution of caribou on the North American continent over the past 100 or 200 years? Well, it comes down to the classic story of 
a lot of wildlife species, not all, but a lot of wildlife species have undergone range contraction. So sensitive bird species and mammals have undergone a fair bit of range contraction across the North American continent, and as well as grizzly bears. You know, grizzly bears used to be in the plains and way down in the southern U.S., but caribou are much the same. They've contracted. The reasons are different than other critters, but caribou have contracted substantially. They used to be found way down uh, in the southeast U.S. as well as as far further south in Idaho and Montana. But they've contracted now. The last group in the lower 48 went extinct in March 2018. The South Selkirk herd was extinct and extirpated in March 2018. Were they shot out or were they uh, killed by uh, wolves and other predators? It was predators that was the most immediate cause of decline, but of course it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a story of changing landscapes, how we've changed uses on the land and extracted resources, and also a gradually warming climate that has contributed to their recession. So the warming climate allows white-tailed deer to expand and survive over winter more easily, which then brings about more cats, more cougars, as well as wolves. Mm. And so the climate has made it easier for deer to encroach in the Pacific Northwest, as most of your listeners will know. There's more and more white-tailed deer, even in BC and Alberta, they're expanding. Mm. And then there's also the story about logging, which grows moose food. Um, Not always and not everywhere, but logging does benefit moose in some ecosystems, especially the really wet ecosystems that grow up all these shrubs. So indirectly, logging grows wolves because logging contributes to expanding moose and then expanding wolf populations. And then caribou take it on the chin. They can't withstand the same predation rates that white-tailed deer or moose can because caribou make fewer babies per individual cow. Plus, once they're encountered by a predator, they're not as good at getting away because they didn't evolve in that uh-huh. environment. Mm. So uh, there are different subspecies of caribou in Canada. Uh, do these are these uh, subspecies geographically uh, separated, or do they do they mix? Is there any genetic flow between the the different subspecies? Oh, that's a really good question. Some of them mix in some areas. Barren ground caribou and woodland caribou do mix at the northern limit of woodland caribou and the southern limit of barren ground caribou. The ranges do overlap, and there's historic gene flow. Um, So different groups in Quebec have pockets of barren ground caribou DNA in them, as well as in British Columbia. And the degree to which they have barren ground caribou genetics largely depends on the, the distance from barren ground herds and the glacial patterns, like how the glaciers receded. So some of the southern mountain caribou in, in B.C. and British Columbia, for example, just to the north of you guys, have relatively little barren ground caribou DNA, and they mostly consist of a south glacier um, DNA, so DNA from animals that resided south of, of the glaciation along the 
along the glacial free um, area that paralleled the Rockies. So there are uh, caribou in Alaska, and as well as our caribou in northern Canada. Is there any mixing between those herds, uh, and do they cross the international boundary? Oh, yeah, that's another fun question. Um, the caribou in Alaska are different subspecies for the most part. Again, there is some mixing across the, the boundary, but they're called Grant's caribou. And there are two herds that mix a whole bunch between Alaska and Yukon, and one is the barren ground herd called the porcupine herd. So that's a, a large migratory herd. It's a famous herd. I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the word porcupine herd. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that herd mixes between the Yukon Territory and Alaska, and there's great co-management among Canada and the U.S. And then there's also um, the Shisana herd, which is not a barren ground herd. They're a woodland herd, so different subspecies. And they mix also across the international border. And they've had some interesting work done on them. There's been wolf control to benefit the Shisana herd. There was also a, a maternity pen um, that, yeah, some well-known Alaskan biologists like Lane Adams studied. So, yeah, there's, there's a long history of research on the Shisana transboundary herd. So what's the condition of caribou populations? Are they increasing or decreasing in Canada? Are they stable? What? It's a tough question because it's a tough question because there's so many different kinds of caribou. Like there's four living um, subspecies. Some herds are doing okay. Like some large band ground herds, like the Beverly herd, is doing okay. But one of the most dramatic and pronounced declines would be the Bathurst band ground herd that was at half a million about 30 years ago, and now they're under 10,000, if you can imagine that, going from 500,000 to 8,000 caribou in the Bathurst herd. So there's also been some pretty dramatic declines. Mm. The herds that I work with in the south, like in British Columbia and Alberta, those herds number more not in the tens or hundreds of thousands, but in the hundreds, or in some cases in the thousands. Mm. And... By and large, a lot of those woodland herds have been declining as well. Not in some areas, not in Saskatchewan, not in northern Manitoba, and not in northern British Columbia. Some of the northern mountain caribou herds are quite stable in northern BC, but certainly the ones in the southern half of those provinces are declining, with the exception of about six herds, which are increasing. Um, So the Columbia North herd got down to about 125, and now it's back up to 210. Um, The Klinziza herd is probably the most well-talked about. If you just Google that, Klinziza, you'll find a whole bunch of work. They were down to under 40 animals in 2015. They were at 38 animals, and now they're, they're at above 114 animals because the indigenous folks have done their own wolf control. Um, they've reduced wolf numbers as part of their tradition, and um, they've initiated a maternal pen where they put in pregnant cows for three months where they can rear their calves until they're big enough to outrun bears, and then they get let go, the calves and cows. And they're also now really working on habitat protection and restoration. They've protected 7,900 square kilometers. I don't know how many miles that is, but it's almost as big as Yellowstone. 
Is there any an area about as big as Yellowstone has been protected for the Clinziza herd, so no more logging there, and the herd is growing. Any uh, effort or desire to reintroduce caribou to the United States in Washington, Idaho, or Montana? Yep, for sure. There's a team working on that with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well as a grad student out of the University of Idaho, and they're trying to look at what the viability of having a herd down there would look like. Like, has climate change gone too far? Is agriculture gone too far? Because what does agriculture mean? Agriculture means a, a pump of white-tailed deer. There's a lot of agriculture down there now. So once it's agriculture, it rarely goes back from agriculture. So white-tailed deer means cats, and cats mean not many caribou. So mm-hmm. mountain lions, and you know what I mean, mountain lions and cougars. So um, there are people looking into it, but it would require major, major efforts on habitat protection and restoration and probably predator control forever because of how much the predator-prey system has changed. What's the the agency in Canada that's responsible for uh, wildlife conservation? It varies from province to province, but in, in the national agency, it's called the Canadian Wildlife Service, so they enact federal laws like the Species at Risk Act, it's called. It's, it's uh, sort of a little bit like the Endangered Species Act in the U.S., but they don't enact the day-to-day management of caribou. That's the provinces. So if you're going to do predator control, that's under the jurisdiction of the provinces. If you're going to protect habitat, that can be partnerships that can be under the form of partnerships between the province and the feds. What's the government objective regarding moose, wolves, cougar, and lynx, and other large uh, mammals? So it depends where. That's the, that's the rub. Like, in endangered caribou habitat, the best solution is to protect habitat, not have a ton of moose. Uh-huh. Um, and this is in areas where moose weren't traditionally super abundant, like historically and have low predator densities. So low and stable moose keep the wolf numbers low until the habitat recovers, if that can in fact occur. But what what's tricky to relay to the public is that in other areas outside caribou habitat, the public wants lots of moose and the government is happy to oblige. They manage the landscape and hunting quotas to maximize moose, you know, hunting so people can fill their freezers and indigenous folks can practice traditional hunting, and non-Indigenous folks can also have access to to moose. So it really depends where. But in core caribou habitat, there didn't used to be lots of moose, so the objective should be to not have abundant moose, Uh Um, because a lot of moose means more wolves, more wolves means fewer caribou. So that's the kind of the triad between moose, wolves, and caribou. And some people will say, oh, well, you guys are sort of... uh, you know, playing master and deciding which animals live or die. Well, we don't decide anything. We're just we're just scientists who provide information. But nobody's picking one animal over another. It's all about restoring the ecosystem to how it used to be so that the ecological conditions could support caribou. And what are the ecological conditions that support caribou? Well, that lots of old-growth forests, like old forests, relatively low densities of white-tailed deer and moose, and low predator densities. That's how they evolved. But in areas outside caribou habitat, you know, fill your boots. We could have lots of white tails and moose and elk and wolves and cougars, whatever folks want. 
but the rub is more inside caribou habitat and caribou ranges. That's where it gets trickier. In Alberta and BC, uh, is there a problem with urban growth encroaching upon wildlife habitat? Yes, but I wouldn't say it's the number one pressing issue. In Alberta, let's say the city of Calgary has a lot of rapid spread, like urban sprawl, so that would be more an issue for grasslands. So, yeah, you're spreading spreading into native grasslands and farmlands, which, of course, is important wildlife for some critters. But in B.C., luckily, there's something called the ALR, the Agricultural Land Reserve, which protects, yeah, agricultural lands from urban spread. I wouldn't say it's the number one wildlife conservation problem. Yeah, okay. Something like in in southern BC, it would be more so something like um, wine wineries. They're, you know, super valuable. People love drinking wine, spending lots of money on wine, so it's a valuable industry, and it spreads rapidly, and that gobbles up grassland habitat. What are the techniques? For birds and snakes and sheep. What are the techniques you use to gain information about caribou and other mammals? We do a lot of radio telemetry. We put collars out, but um, we also just fly censuses, and now we use camera traps more and more so that we don't have to collar animals. But you, yeah, I don't think we'll ever get away from radio collaring because that gives you something that cameras and other techniques don't. It gives you the cause of death. So radio collars are really the only way to get cause of death of an animal, and that helps you understand what makes them tick, what's killing them. So do you um, admit, in the old days? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You a lot of time out in the out in the wilderness. As much as I can. That's why I chose to live in this town instead of on a university campus. So I still have students at the universities and supervise and have colleagues there, but. Um, yeah, the reason I chose to live here is so I could get out. Like I say, 10 minutes of driving, and I'm in the wilderness, and I had a full day on Friday in, in the sun mm. on a boat checking cameras. And then also that week I had a dead caribou, so I jumped out with a, with a colleague from the B.C. government. We worked very closely with the B.C. government, and we went and found out what killed that caribou. So, yeah, that was two days last week, two full days out in the bush, so that was good for a week anyway. <laughs> so predators are uh, a particular adversity to uh, wolves and moose and I mean, I'm sorry to moose and caribou and elk and so on. Sorry, I didn't hear the first part of your question. Oh, I'm just asking about uh, predators and their involvement with uh, ungulates. Yeah, I mean it's great to have. Like having predators on the, as part of a natural landscape mm-hmm. helps to have a natural ecosystem. You know, predators were abundant in some areas and less abundant in other areas. But in caribou habitats, there were historically fewer predators, um, and now there's more because of how we've changed the landscape, how we've logged the forest and had climate change. So you can imagine in these wilderness areas, there's a lot of grizzly bears and uh, in some areas, abundant wolves and cougars. So having a lot of those is not compatible with caribou. But, yeah, if you, this is an important point. If you only focus on predator redu- reductions to keep caribou around, then you're going to kind of be chasing your tail forever. Uh-huh. The ultimate cause of the problem is how we've 
you know, changed, changed landscapes. So you have uh, mule deer, do you have white-tailed deer in South Park, Canada? Yeah, it's all, it's all right here, just right in town and north of town. We have, uh, we have a fair number of mule deer, white-tailed deer, not many elk at all. You have to go about 60 miles to the east to get into a bunch of elk. Oh. Where it's drier and there's less snow and there's more natural forest fires, so that's what the elk like. But around here we got muleys, we got whitetails, um, lots of moose, uh, good goat population up in the mountains, and we have all five major predators. We've got grizzlies, blacks, wolves, cougars, and wolverine. There are no uh... meso predators. No, no, no bison uh, in the wild. Is that correct? Not down here. Um, as as you uh, alluded to, they've been, um, yeah, reintroduced in Banff National Park, just a little bit over from me to the east, right across the Rockies, just over the hill. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's bison in northern BC, but not around here. Uh, muskox. Way in the north. Ah. Yeah, Northwest Territories. Oh, I see. Okay. Northern Alberta and BC. Yeah. So not, those aren't critters I see for on a week to week basis. But, um, and black bear, uh, it, they're present as well as grizzlies? Yeah, lots of black bears, fair number of grizzlies. Uh-huh. Um, we have 30 to 50. Grizzly bears per thousand square kilometers just north of town, so those are fairly healthy densities of grizzlies, and there's lots of black bears. Um, How are Rocky Mountain sheep yeah. doing in Canada? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to speculate. Like, I know that some sheep in, in the Okanagan, so southern BC, close to the U.S. border, have the bacteria, so they're not doing great. Um, but, yeah, they get hit hard by those infections. But uh, is, that because, sheep, is that because they are, are adjacent to domestic sheep? That's I think that's one way people worry about the transmission, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, yeah, you know, and then closer to the Rocky Mountains in B.C., so further to the east from the Okanagan, there are healthy sheep populations. I know there's a bit of a uh, kerfuffle because they've shut down the open season on full curl rams. Oh, really? This coming year, now it's only on a lottery. Uh-huh. So people aren't happy about that because some of the indices are that the sheep hunt is sustainable, but um, I don't know too much about that. In your biodiversity studies, uh, are there any other wildlife that you've studied or learned about? Yeah, like I mentioned, the animals that um, that feed on caribou and that caribou interact with. Um, but, yeah, I haven't yet. One thing I'm really interested in is, these, in terms of biodiversity, is these forests that caribou help protect because the existence of caribou, you know, reduces logging in these areas. And so I'm interested in understanding whether these habitat forest protection measures that are designed for caribou have any other benefits for other biodiversity, like invertebrates, lichens, um, mosses, uh, birds, 
So critters that people don't think of, whether caribou are a good umbrella, and I suspect they are, because caribou help reduce the amount of logging over a forest. There's no question about that. Um, and that, yeah, it'd be good to understand what the co-benefits are of, of caribou uh-huh. habitat protection. Well, Robert, we have exhausted our time, so I really appreciate it. This has been fascinating to learn about caribou since we don't have any down here. So thank you very much. Maybe one day. <laughs> Our guest today has been Robert You're welcome. Green, Director of Caribou Monitoring Unit uh, of the Biodiversity uh, Pathways. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallon Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com. See additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.